How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. On the morning of January 9th, 2022, a high-rise fire killed 17 people, including eight children, at the Twin Parks Northwest Site 4 high-rise apartment complex in the Bronx, New York. Major fires are nothing new to New York City or to the FDNY, but this was different. This fire was tragic. This fire was filled with challenges. But what this fire did not lack was incredible acts of heroism on behalf of the FDNY, the FDNY EMS, and all responding agencies on scene that day. On that morning, EMS Deputy Chief Farouk Mohammed of the FDNY received the tone out for a working fire. He had been to hundreds of these in his career, but listening to the radio transmissions while en route, he quickly realized that this was a bad one. On scene, within four minutes of the first arriving officer, he immediately assumed EMS branch command of what would become the deadliest fire in New York City in three decades. Here with us to share his story of that day is Deputy Chief Farouk Mohammed of the FDNY EMS. Chief, first, thank you for your service on that day, and thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me. Maybe you start off a little bit by telling us about your career with the FDNY. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I began my career with the Fire Department of New York Emergency Medical Services in 1996 as an EMT. That makes a little over 25 years. And my very first station was 37, located in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. That station is now known as Station 35 and has since been relocated to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I worked my way up to paramedic, lieutenant, captain, and now deputy chief. I was part of the FDNY media unit for many years and helped create training material for Ebola response and preparedness, intranasal naloxone, and our community CPR program, and uh, more recently, COVID-19 response and preparedness, and many other initiatives. I helped produce hundreds of training videos over the years, and I was also part of the rescue and recovery effort on 9-11 and worked during Hurricane Sandy. I still work as a paramedic per diem uh, for local fire departments out in Long Island, and I'm a certified lab instructor, and I help train new EMTs. At FDNY, I'm currently assigned to EMS Division Two in the South Bronx, and I'm the uh, editor-in-chief of FDNY's Pro EMS Magazine. So you uh, have a few responsibilities, it sounds like, Chief. So, <laughs> um, just I definitely you, stay busy. I'll yeah, tell you that. no doubt. Now, you know, again, I, I really do want to thank you for coming on to talk about this incident specifically, which certainly goes without saying was challenging on so many different fronts. But aside from the outcome, as far as it relates to casualty count and fatality, how and when did you know? When this that this fire was going to be especially challenging, uh, that was pretty early on. So as soon as I was assigned to the call, and I got the call immediately, uh, 
on my department issued phone, we have an app that tells you that, you know, a fire just dropped or an MCI just dropped. And uh, I saw that and I jumped in the vehicle and I immediately uh, put myself on the call through my citywide dispatcher and uh, proceeded to respond. And I started to listen to the citywide frequency and the Bronx fire radio. So anytime I'm on a fire, you know, I'm going to listen to the fire radio in route because I'm going to get valuable information just from that alone. So while en route to the location, I could already hear that we're going to have patience from what I was hearing. So even before I arrived, I could see thick black smoke coming from the high rise from a distance. And when I got to the scene, I could hear loud screams coming from everywhere. There were people hanging out of broken windows, trying to get air. And you know, even a few critical patients can require a significant number of resources, and that can be challenging. This incident produced an unprecedented 32 red tag or critical patients, a total of 64. So just imagine what we encountered. Yeah. I mean, it goes without saying that fire calls are, are difficult because there's so many things that go through your your head. Think that you know, whole situational awareness component of this and scene size up. And I always tend to get a lot out of voice inflection on radio transmissions. I, I think you'd probably be able to agree with that. As you're responding to a job, you could tell by the other transmissions as to what's going on. And when you hear that inflection high, and when you hear that sense of urgency, you know what you're going into. And I would assume that that's what was going on that day. Absolutely. You could hear the just the, the the need for you know resources just coming mm-hmm. from th- the voices and uh, my first arriving officer you know when he gave his initial report you could hear the stress in his voice you know right. we knew that this was something that was going to be serious and uh, I knew that before I got there and like you said I got there just about four minutes before him but he had already given his initial report and um, you know just from from that, I knew that this was going to be a very challenging job. And then those voice inflections were, yeah, that they were noted and I could hear it. So as you're heading to the scene and you're en route and you're listening, you're monitoring uh, the fire frequency, the citywide frequency, what is going through your head? How are you mentally preparing for this specific job? That's a great question, Mike, because no matter how big or small the job is, I always prepare mentally you know, in route and prior to my arrival, because it's like a, some of it's like a script. And I start to play that script in my head as to what I'm going to do, what I'm going to establish in terms of sectors and things like that, and what I should be aware of before I get there and, and make a note of, because adrenaline is going through, you know, your body, your heart's pumping, your heart's racing, and uh, it's easily, it's easy to, to get distracted. So for me to stay focused I just start to go through those things in my head and just make a note of those things. And I was, and this was no different. I was doing the same thing in route. And once I heard the urgency in the voices on the radio, I knew that I had to be even more prepared. So it's hard to prepare for a job of this magnitude, I would say for anyone, but you know, I was doing what I could uh, before getting there. Obviously I didn't know what I was going to fully encounter until I got there, but definitely just going through things in your head, just mentally preparing, visualizing things is crucial to to the success of an operation, I think. 
Without question. So let's let's head right to the arrival. So with respect to challenges, there's obviously many, but we're talking about the South Bronx. So for those that don't know, this is obviously an urban environment. Things are on top of each other, and this is a high-rise building. So I'm assuming that your entry into the scene was difficult enough, given the apparatus that were probably on scene at that point. Fortunately for me, I when I arrived to the scene, I was able to find a place where I could park. Awesome. It was a spot where you, know, you don't want to get uh, blocked in. We know that rule. That's that's the urban rule right there at EMS. Exactly. And that's always at the forefront of my mind when it comes to even my own vehicle. But this was a difficult spot where there was a lot of apparatus coming in. And I the first fo- spot I found, which was very close to the scene, literally a few seconds walking distance, that's where I parked. And uh, I could, like I said, I could see that this was going to be intense. I could see the thick black smoke and I could see, I could hear the screams, but uh, you know that I got there and I made it to the command post fairly quickly, and that's when I began to experience some of the initial challenges. Yeah, so I was going to say, let, let's talk about that command post experience. You know, as you arrive at the command post, obviously there all hands are working, um, and so you're met there. It becomes a unified command post, I'm certain, and you're getting intel from your officer that's on scene. How are you able to process all that information in such a short period of time, and what was being told to you at that point? I arrived on scene within minutes of being assigned, as we stated before, about four minutes after the first arriving officer, who happened to be a lieutenant. His name is uh, Gerardo Toiloy, and upon his arrival... He gave a staging location with best access and egress, um, which was at uh, East 181 Street in Valentine. And he indicated in his initial report that there's an extremely high potential for injury to both public safety personnel and civilians. I mean, normally we would say high, a potential is high, but he went extremely, he said extremely high, you know. So mm-hmm. that alone told me that this was going to be just a very serious, serious call. And um, in that report, he mentioned that there would be the possibility of two red tag patients uh, coming out. So when I got to the command post, he gave me whatever information he had, and I informed him at that point that I'd be assuming control of the medical branch, and he'd now be known as my on-scene communications officer. So I directed him to stay close to me, knowing that the communications officer will be essential to this operation. You know, Just then, we received our first two critical patients, and that number just kept increasing from there. Uh, I needed information about the units on scene, who was coming in, and I also needed to convey messages to my sector officers and get information from them. So having my communications officer next to me enabled me to do that. He followed through with all the direction I gave him. And thankfully, he's an experienced lieutenant who knew what was required of his role. So he did that so well, and we worked so well together. You know, I I make mention this in in a lot of, you know, the talks that I do on incident command. And I'm a firm believer in the first 20 minutes of an incident will dictate the outcome. And I, I'm really curious as to, as you arrived and you start getting patients right away, there's not a lot of lead time there. So as far as casualty collection points and treatment areas, you know, how, how, how is that set up initially as you were getting that onslaught of patients so quickly? So as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I established uh, sectors. Establishing sectors is crucial to the success of a job. So as you mentioned earlier on you know, when you, in, in the introduction, you know, this fire was not typical by any means. It was, you know, according to Mayor uh, Eric Adams, this fire was the city's worst since the Happy Land Fire in 1990. 
And, and from my own years of experience, I can tell you that this was in no way typical. You know, I was seeing small children being brought out in cardiac arrest one after another. So, so normally on a fire, I get to the scene and then the, you know, and I respond to the command post in the same way, make contact with the incident commander and, and obtain all pertinent information. And actually at FDNY, we have a, a tablet we use for MCIs. You know, it's like a portable command board. Uh, and I use that a lot. But on this call, I knew that I wasn't going to touch that. It's a fantastic tool, but in this situation, pen and paper would be the best option. I wasn't going to start, you know, typing on a device when so many red tags were being brought out. It was evolving too fast for you to, to even think that you could use that. Exactly. But uh, creating sectors is crucial. And I did that in a timely manner. I, my initial sectors were the command post, of course, my communications officer, my staging officer. Then I had a secondary staging officer, my rescue group leader. I had a triage treatment officer, my tracking officer, and my MERV officer. And once feasible, we created additional sectors, including, of course, the rehab sector. Talk to me a little bit and the listener a little bit about the MERV sector. I'm not sure everybody understands what that is. Uh, I'm familiar with it, but just for the listener's purpose, what does the MERV do? That's the major emergency response vehicle. It has the capability of holding a large number of patients, and it was so instrumental at this job. And another thing that went back to my training was knowing the priority levels. So we had a lot of green tag or stable patients coming out of this fire. And some of the arriving units were getting a hold of the stable patients and wanted to treat them. And we stopped that. I, I witnessed that immediately. And I made sure that none of our green tags were being treated and taken to hospitals when we have red tags. So the MERV was so helpful in that way. I instructed my citywide dispatcher to have the MERV crew come to the command post and help take all of our green tags to the MERV. There was a point where we had about 26 green tags in the MERV. So not only does it have equipment and things like that, it's able to hold a large number of people. Yeah. So able, you were able to clear the board of the greens and basically hunt the reds by right. utilizing the MERV surfaces. And does the, does the MERV, or, or I should say, do the MERVs, do they populate treatment areas with equipment? They can assist with that uh, as needed, you know, depending on the circumstances. You know, in this case, the uh, the treatment, a lot of it was being done on the fly, you know, as the patients would be, there were patients coming out of it from three different areas. And having a, um, a casualty collection point was at the forefront of my mind at that time. But I had direct contact with my treatment and transport officer and I was seeing every patient coming out and he was making sure that the red tags were being handled by our crews. And I was seeing that and the communication was there. So just because of the nature of the call initially, we didn't uh, have that casualty collection point until a little bit later on. Yeah, I, I think that that is a huge, huge um, point that you make there. In a sense that, yes, in a perfect world, we're going to have a casualty collection point, we're going to have a triage group, we're going to have a treatment group, we're going to have a transport group, and we're going to run through that the way it should be run. When you're inundated and overwhelmed with red patients that are coming out from three different areas, you start to predominantly work with your command post directly to your staging and your transport. That's the way it seems to, to flow because you have to move those patients immediately. Exactly. I mean, there was a point where we had more red tags than, than crews. I mean, and they were being treated right there on the scene. We had CFRs, you know, doing CPR. We had, it was all hands on deck. And um, 
you know, just initially having that 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 uh, collection point was uh, just not feasible and uh, didn't make sense initially. And but when it did, you know, we established that. But the important thing was that the communication was there the entire time. You know, you would think that there would be so much confusion at the command post on a call like this, but there wasn't. Thankfully, there wasn't because of that communication, because of establishing those sectors and early on in the game. Had I not established sectors, had I not identified a communications officer, this could have easily been a major challenge and could have negatively impacted you know, the outcome of uh, our resources at that time. But it didn't happen because we, was, we were able to establish those sectors and maintain that communication. And I kept my communications officer with me the entire time. It just goes to show, Chief, how important the communications uh, aspect is of any major incident. If you wrap your arms around it early enough and you have good comms, you'll likely have a better and 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 a, a more coordinated type response and outcome. And, and I think that you, I think you certainly portray, you know, that in in this story is how you got there early on and realized and recognized how important that was given the situation, how quickly it was evolving. And kudos to you and, and to your training and to your team for being able to pull that off because, you know, again, when we speak about the logistics, you know, logistical challenges that come into this, as I, as I mentioned, the Bronx space is tight, right? It's very tight. So I'm curious how, you know, the transport element went to this scene. Uh, you know, as far as ingress and egress is concerned, I know you established staging area, a staging area, and then a secondary um, after that. How was getting those units in for pickups? How was that initially? Uh, you know, with all of that apparatus and resources there. Before I get to that, Mike, I want to touch on a, a, that point again about the communication yeah. and, and, and thinking about things before you get there. Um, so any... My recommendation to any officer out there who responds to any MCI is to have some level of routine as far as to how you deal with your MCIs. Because that came into play, you know, very much so in this situation. Because any MCI I go to, I establish sectors, no matter how big or small. Right. You know, it's just a routine. If I end up not needing them, then we break down those sectors. But just having that in my head kept me focused. Because there was a lot going on here and a lot of emotions and a lot of stress. Sure. So you could easily get distracted. But I created those sectors fast and they were instrumental when dealing with this with this call. So always have some type of formula for when you respond to an MCI. And creating sectors is just 100% necessary. Yeah, it's a mental yeah. checklist that you need to have. Yeah. It really is. You know, you go down, you check the boxes. And, and those are instrumental. Yes. And you know what? It's uh, good to know your officers, get to know them, work with them, because you identify certain strengths uh, and the ones that need a little bit of a push. You you know, you do uh, debriefings afterwards and uh, you communicate some of those things with them and we help each other along and we all need that. And it's a team effort. You know, Mike, uh, none of us could have done this on our own. I could I definitely couldn't have done this by myself. It was a, a massive team effort, even, you know, in terms of uh, being the medical branch director. So uh, we have to work uh, together. We have to train together. We have to 
keep learning together and helping each other out and not being afraid to take any kind of criticism when it's constructive criticism, because that's how you learn and grow. Ask those questions. You know, don't be afraid to be vulnerable sometimes, because if you keep putting your ego, you know, uh, out there and then you're not going to, you're not going to learn, you're going to, you're going to create a block and that's when you stop. So ask questions, learn. And, you know, when, when you see certain things in your performance that need to be worked on, you do it. And that's what I always do. So, you know, I always look back at calls and uh, try to try to get better from it. So, yeah, again, you know, have a script, have a playlist and try to follow that to the best of your ability. And if you have to modify, you do. And then a lot of times you do because of the dynamics of this of this job. Sure. Adapting and overcoming is what we do pretty well. Yeah. So going back to your going back to your question. Sorry, uh, you were talking about space and and establishing a, you know egress and uh, you know an access. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we had a lot of people operating on this assignment and so much apparatus. So we had our initial staging location, which became difficult to navigate at, at one point. And this is where people's experiences come into play. So I had another officer, another lieutenant, Daniel Burgess, who was assigned to the call. And when he got there, he recognized this issue with the staging area. And he communicated to my communications officer that he's creating a secondary staging location. So I immediately asked him, find out where it is and get all the pertinent details about that secondary staging location, find out what units are there. And I'm going to communicate that to my citywide dispatcher. And that's exactly what I did. And then we maintained that secondary staging location. And uh, we had units coming in from there and that helped a lot. And, uh, you know, that took care of some of the issues with, with units uh, getting around and getting in and out. He also uh, spoke to a fire uh, chief that was at that secondary location and they established a, like a transport corridor, you can call it, for vehicles. They established a lane that they kept open just to get vehicles in and out. Excellent. That's excellent. You know, what was unique about this fire chief is that, yes, it was a mass fatality, but the cause of death on all of the decedents in this fire was smoke inhalation, which is very unique. You know, we go to these fires and certainly going to have smoke inhalation, but you're also going to, in a fire like this, you would think you have a lot of burns as well. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how this played out and what was utilized. I know cyano kits were utilized at this fire heavily. Talk to me about how this presented itself to you as the commander. You know, knowing that smoke inhalation was a huge factor and it wasn't burns that really, you know, created a lot of the red tags and critical patients, we wanted to make sure that we gave everybody a hundred percent chance of survival. I mean, we always do, of course, you know what I mean? But uh, we weren't going to make black tags when there was a potential to save that life. You know, when you follow the normal triage system, if somebody, you know, doesn't have an airway, Mm -hmm. you know, you make another attempt and they're a black tag typically, right? Right. But in this case, we knew that it could be reversed yep. or potentially reversed. And it was. We saved so many people, mm-hmm. Mike. And uh, cyanide kits helped a lot. I mean, it wasn't, it was just knowing that those cyanide kits needed to be uh, placed, you know, to use and, and gotten on board to those patients. So uh, one of our rescue group leaders, um, Lieutenant Santangelo, he was extremely helpful in the, in the sense that he made sure that cyanide kits were getting spiked ahead of time yep. before patients were even, you know, brought out um, just to have them ready to go. Cause uh, you know, you can spend a few minutes just spiking a bag and getting ready to go. So that saved valuable time. 
And uh, we got those cyanokits on board, a lot of patients, and I'm, I'm sure that it helped save lives. There's no question that it did. And, and you know, the high speed nature um, of the FDNY to recognize that at that time and, and not only recognize it, but be able to deploy it in, in that quick time frame without question save lives. And that's why, you know, I, as I said, there were there were so many tales of heroism here and, and, and certainly fire department when they're doing the initial rescue, they they historically will get all that credit and they certainly deserve it. But it's important to recognize what EMS did as these patients were coming out. And well, that's just one facet of the heroism that took took place on that day. And certainly fire. I mean, there are stories that they ran out of air, that they continue to push forward. You know, this was, as you said, a collective effort. And although it goes down as the deadliest fire in 30 years, I would argue that this this could be one of the most heroic fires that the FDMY came together to fight together. Absolutely, Mike. I have to say that EMS doesn't always get the recognition they deserve and they should, you know, they work so hard and they do so much and they, and they care so much. In this situation, it was just inspirational to see, you know, fire, EMS and PD all working together. You know, I had a fire chief next to me during uh, a lot of this incident, just getting information from me because he wanted to know the number of critical patients as well. That's so important. That that information is so necessary, keeping track. And uh, that was something that I, I was doing, making sure that I knew the exact number of my critical patients. So I asked him, I said, can we get, you know, we need more CFRs to help with the patient care. Can we get that established? And and, and he did. And uh, they were there. Like a number of the the fire units were just utilized for CFR duties. And uh, it was all hands on deck. We had everybody that could be utilized was being utilized. So, you know, there was CPR going on in front of the location until units could transport them. Um, you know, it, it was just... It was just unbelievable to see. And, uh, you know, like I said, just uh, so, so inspirational and uh, just so beautiful how they work together. And that's, you know, these tragedies are, are so difficult, but the only thing that you can take from it is what we all did and giving all those people the best possible chance. You know, that's that's what we're here for. And, and we did that. And that's the only thing that keeps us strong, keeps us motivated and keeps us wanting to be better at what we do, because sadly, we're going to encounter, you know, future disasters. You know, we hope that we don't, but we just know that they happen. I mean, over 25 years of my history with the department, I've responded to so many emergencies, including 9-11. And, and I know that, you know, these things happen. And when they do, we want to be ready. We want to be prepared and we want to work well together. And we did that. Everybody just worked so well together. The communication was so strong and the effort, you know, was just, they gave it their hundred percent, Mike. And uh, I'm just so proud of everybody. Certainly a group effort and, and a collective rescue without question, which brings me to my next point for you, Chief, and that is the mental health aspect to this. And it's certainly something that we are seeing more and more of in this industry, um, in public service, uh, you know, public safety, EMS, fire, law enforcement, we are our worst enemies when it comes to taking care of ourselves. And, you know, a, an event such as this, it certainly takes its toll on the responder. And I'm curious as to how you're dealing with this and how you're ensuring that your members are dealing with this the right way. That's a very important question, Mike. And uh, it is something that we talk about a lot more these days and, and we should. So I just want to let everyone know that at FDNY, we provide counseling services, 
We have a counseling services unit. We have peer support. And we make sure that we let each member know that these services are uh, available to them. And they should just feel free to go ahead and reach out and obtain those services. I mean, all of our members went beyond the call of duty that day, and they do it so often. I mean, our members deal with so much trauma and stress on a routine basis, and they each have unique ways of dealing with those emotions. I mean, we know that everyone has unique experiences, beliefs, and so many other factors that influence how we cope with trauma. So there isn't a formula that works for everyone, but we try our best to provide all the services that we can you know, provide from those units, the CSU and the peer support. I mean, it's important, it's so important to talk to someone and do what it takes to process these events in a healthy way. Not, press, not processing these events can cause them to be triggered later and impacts one's well-being. For myself, um, I've witnessed so much trauma over the years, and sometimes I get choked up when I start thinking about the images that are forever stamped in my brain. But I remember that my fellow first responders are some of the most dedicated people on the planet. They show so much compassion and care uh, for all those people that we serve. I mean, they're an inspiration to me, and I use my experiences to train harder, to be a better leader, a, a better first responder, a better family man, and a better human being overall. That's how I process this. You know, never become complacent and never fear getting out of your comfort zone. That's my motto, Mike. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not afraid to uh, show emotion when I need to because I think it's healthy. And uh, you've got to get away from the stigmas and let people know that it's healthy and, and safe to go ahead and talk about your feelings and, and get help. Because what we do is not something that people should experience on a regular basis, but we do. All that trauma or the difficult experiences that we face from other people out there that need us, we take in so much. And we need to let that out. We need to process it. So, you know, in the past, from, from the military to EMS to all these different first responder fields everywhere, you know, frontline positions, we know that there are, there are stigmas. You know, when you go out and you seek help, people think that it could be seen as a sign of weakness. But we are here to let people know that that is not weakness, that's strength. Letting people know that, you know, you're facing some challenges take strength and we encourage it Mike. and that's how we that's how we process this and we just we talk without question chief those are wise words and it's just another reminder to us that not being okay is okay and seeking help is not weak and sure we get called heroes but it's certainly not heroic to ignore your own self-help and your own mental capacity to process these types of events that we do on a daily basis. And we need to start taking a more proactive role in making sure that we're taking care of ourselves and our peers on a regular basis. Chief, I really want to thank you again for sharing this story with us. It's a story based in bravery and selfless service. Obviously, our thoughts are with all of the victims and their families, but also the responders who experienced that challenge on that day. So thanks again, Chief, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And and this helps too, just uh, discussing the events and know that we're going to push forward and we're going to keep, we're going to keep learning.
I'm going to keep training. Thanks, Mike. So much, Chief. I appreciate it. And thank you for tuning into another episode of EMS World Podcast. Stay tuned for brand new episodes in the very near future. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Talk soon. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 